If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it with me right now to Psalm 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've printed out the sermon text on the back of your order of service handout. If you don't have one of those, please feel free to get up and grab one in the hallway lobby area. There should be a stack available for you all. It'll be helpful to visually see the big idea, the words of scripture, and then even the outline of Psalm 12 as each week I'm trying to give you a guide to know how to not only understand a section of God's word, in this case a section called Psalm 12, but also for you to use to pray and to learn how to read the Psalms as a worship guide for your own life. Before we read Psalm 12, I want to introduce message from um, sharing a little tidbit from Rod Dreher's new book that recently came out. He says in the introduction of his book that in the year 2015 there was an event being covered in most major news outlets that alarmed a 90-year-old Catholic woman living here in the United States. Well, who's this woman and why should we care? Trier says she was in her 90s, that she was an immigrant that had come to the United States from Czechoslovakia. She spent in her youth six years in prison in her homeland because she was a part of a Catholic anti-communist group. So that's the woman, 90-year-old Czechoslovakian immigrant who used to spend time in prison for being anti-communist. So what was the event in the news that led her to be alarmed? Andrea explains that the news reports in 2015 were about a recent social media frenzy that exploded and went viral because of a small town, Indiana, owner of a pizza shop started receiving death threats and threats on their business and their family for not catering a same-sex wedding in Indiana. People said that they were going to destroy their property, they were going to kill their actual lives, and all over Twitter and social media, people were asking that the pizzeria be burned down and the owners be thrown in jail or something like this. So maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've heard a lot of these stories. Why is this 90-year-old Czechoslovakian woman concerned at this point. And she said to Dreher that in the United States, as these events become more prevalent, it's reminding of her of the first stages of communism that came to check. Apparently, immigrant parents from communist countries, again, according to Dreher's research as a journalist, have repeatedly been sounding the alarms to their children and to our society about the dangers of a totalitarian kind of government. And so the question for us before we read Psalm 12 is, should we care about these concerns? Should we listen to their warnings? We live in America, the land of liberty, individual rights, one nation under God. We live by the Constitution with the Bill of Rights. And so maybe some of us 
will hear these things and we will laugh. We will throw it off quickly as if it's just some aging parent that's spouting off because of some crazy nonsense, triggering unnecessary fears and anxieties. Others of us might be like, no, this is extremely important. And then there's a lot of us in between. But I think for us as believers, as Christians, we want to consider the words of God in Psalm 12 and see if perhaps there are not some overlapping important lessons we can learn from things from Dreer's book and other comments made by friends that are here in the U.S. But let's begin, as I said, reading Psalm 12 understanding what God's word has to say, and then for the sake of application and illustration, let's compare and contrast the time, the era, the situations that would bring about Psalm 12 with our day. Here's God's word. To the choir master, according to the eight-stringed instrument or the tune of the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever on Every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I hope you can see right here on your handout the outline, the big idea. What's Psalm 12 about? A deceived world is saved by a divine word. A world that is full of deception everywhere you turn will ultimately be saved by the divine word of God. I think that's the big idea in one short, pithy sentence for you to remember. Psalm 12, deception everywhere contrasted with the purity and the power of God's word. Psalm 12. And you can see it very clearly with this, what we call chiastic structure. You can see the way the the outer parts of the psalm, verse 1, verses 7 and 8, saving us from our society. We're going to put our trust in the Lord and we're going to pray and we're going to ask, save us, O Lord, or as you see in verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep or The Hebrew word shamar, many of you on Wednesday Bible study, you should have heard that word in our Bible study of Genesis. Shamar, to keep, to guard, to watch over, 
to make sure nothing bad happens. You, O Lord, will be that garter, watcher of your people. From what? And you can see it, the contrast between verse 1 and 7 and 8. The godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished, 7 and 8. This generation where on every side, wherever we look, the wicked are walking around. That's just a general word for walking. They're prowling around. Everywhere I walk, I see wickedness, vileness, another word for evil. It's being exalted and, and shouted proudly from everyone that is a human, the children of man. It's a poetic way of just saying humans. So there's your, your borders. That's the outline of this psalm is Lord, save. It's a prayer that God would keep and save and deliver and protect his people from rampant evil and wickedness. Hopefully that's clear to you. If you move in the next stanzas, you'll see that what's the specific evil that he's referring to? And it's very clear in verses 2, 3, and 4, but the description of the wicked The words of the wicked, verses 2 and 3, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering, this is the Hebrew word for smooth, smooth talker would be our English idiomatic expression. You ever heard that phrase, a smooth talker? Everyone who utters lies to his neighbor and then with flattering smooth talk and a double heart they speak. So may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts, which was why I had Sam read for us James 3. Did you notice that phrase about the boast of the tongue in James 3? Some commentators suggest that the New Testament is thinking about this phrase in the Old Testament. By the way, a lot of times when we have scripture readings, they're planned, you know, they're not random. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament a lot. And so oftentimes we want to see the usage. So the words of the wicked in verses 2 and 3, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Save us, O Lord, everywhere we turn, everywhere we look. It just seems like it's evil and destructive. It reminds me really of last week's psalm, doesn't it? Perhaps that's why Psalm 11 and 12 are right next to each other. What should the righteous do when the foundations of the kingdom are destroyed and everywhere you look, there's chaos abounding? Similar kind of idea here in Psalm 12, but more specific is the words of the wicked and the evil being described as the power of their tongue. And then notice the way that in our psalm that's It's contrasted with the words of the Lord. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. They're like refined silver in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Seven times. Why seven? Seven means complete, full, perfect, you might say. How many days did it take for the Lord to finish and complete his work of creation? It's a a seven-day process that starts the Bible. Seven days in Genesis chapter 1. Seven. Perfect, complete wholeness. If you want to communicate that in the rest of Scripture, you say seven. The words of the Lord are pure words because they have been refined like a silver 
in a furnace or a crucible. All of the extra particles are being burned apart, and what's left is just the pure silver. That is the word of God, the purity and the power and the effectiveness of God's word is being contrasted with the flattery, the boastful emptiness of the wicked's words. What words more specifically? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. And so the psalmist, as a chiastic structure would normally do, right in the middle, contrasts the actual words of the wicked with the words of the Lord. Notice verses 4 and 5. Those who say, so here's the wicked speaking, they say, with our tongue we will prevail. It's the word for victory. We will win with our tongues. They're confident, as we see in verse 3. Great boasts. Our tongue will lead us to victory. Our lips are with us, and there is no one who is mastering us. We are our captain and master. We are going to determine our fate. That's the gist of what the wicked are saying. They're boasting about how confident they are to prevail, and there will be no one else who will slow them down. Now compare and contrast that with God speaking. The Lord says, because the Lord are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he, and then it says the word again, groans. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise and I will place him in safety, the very place for which he is groaning and longing. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? The boastful words of the wicked saying no one will master over us, we will prevail, and we will oppress the poor, but the Lord hears their groans. And he speaks, and I love the way in Hebrew it just says, atah, meaning now, I'm urgently, I will arise, I will get up, I will do something. And so therefore, you and I and the original psalmist and the people of God should have confidence in God's word, We should have confidence in God's willingness to save that the thing he says is the thing that he will do because it's a reflection of the God who he is. Do you know that? The thing God says is the thing that he will do because it's a reflection of the God who is. Think about God's word in those categories. He speaks and what he says is what happens This is, again, page one of the Bible, isn't it? How did creation come about? And God said ten times. We hear that refrain in Genesis 1. And God said. God speaks, and then it happens because it's a reflection of who God is. He is the creator, sustainer, the one who gives life and breath, and all that exists is because of the word of God. Not just in the original creation. You could go to Hebrews chapter 1. Read the first three verses and you'll see a little phrase about how all things are upheld by his word. All things are upheld, sustained. You're breathing right now. The sun came up again. 
We have another day with new mercies. Why? Because of the sustaining power of the word of our God. You should take confidence in God speaking and that enabling all that exists and happens in the world. And so it's no surprise that David, the psalmist, as it's said right there in our superscription, a psalm of David, turns to the Lord and says, save, Lord, in light of all of the chaos around us, and more specifically, the chaos of flattery, the chaos of, of evil, wicked speech. So let's think about our society. This is a communal psalm. This is a psalm that was written by David, more than likely. And if I were to just guess, even though we don't know, if I were to just guess a scenario that David is referring to, it could be like when he was the anointed king and everybody's following Saul and his boasts, but nobody's listening to David and the Lord. Or when his son Absalom, for example, wants to overthrow and says that he's going to be the king, so David's the rightful king. There's different moments in David's life where everybody's saying something that is against what God's word had said. And they're speaking proudly. And you could just imagine that those scenarios would fit well with these contexts in David's life. But what about our society? Do we need to pray? Save us from our society? Do you look around and are all of your neighbors truth-tellers? Do you turn on the news? Do you flip on your social media account and you just feel like, you know, this nation is the epitome of truth-telling? Or is that in and of itself a laughable joke? Because, like our psalm says, the godly ones are gone. The faithful seem to have vanished from our land. Everywhere we look on all sides of us, it seems as if vileness is being exalted amongst the people. Is there any connection to our society and these words from Psalm 12? I ask that very genuinely. I can see many times where it seems to me, personally, where I feel like, yeah, I don't know what to believe anymore. I don't know who to listen to. Which authority, which news channel, which government agency, which mayor or governor? Do you know that Chicago is the windy city, not because of the windy gusts, but specifically because of our politicians being so boastful with their mouths? They blow hot air, it was said. So we are called the windy city. Here we are, we're living in the windy city. Do we have any politicians that have ever been similar to what Psalm 12 describes. So in Rodrier's book, he says, what if this old 90-year-old Czech woman living here in the United States, because of her past experiences, is seeing something that some of us are blind to? What if we really are witnessing some movement toward totalitarianism and because it doesn't look exactly like communist Russia or communist, communism of old, some of us are failing to see it. So what Rodrier did, and this is what the whole book is about, is he decided on the basis of this woman, he got alerted and he started to ask a bunch of former Soviet Union immigrants and people living here in the States 
whether or not they agreed with this woman. And so he says, during the next few years, I spoke with dozens of men and women who had once lived under a communist regime. And so I asked them, what did you think of this woman's declaration? Did they think that life in America is drifting toward some sort of totalitarianism? Dreer says, all of them said yes, and many of them emphatic yes. In fact, he goes on to explain, they were surprised that I would even ask the question because they consider Americans to be hopelessly naive on this subject. In talking at length with some of these immigrants who found refuge in America, Dreer discovered that they were genuinely angry that more fellow Americans have not recognized what is happening. So, Embassy Church, is it hard for us, if you've never experienced this sort of thing, to recognize that perhaps you're being surrounded by people every which way you look that are talking with smooth words. They're not going to flat out say the lie. They're going to couch it in a way that makes it more palatable. This was the line that I thought would be really helpful for you all to start thinking about. Dreer writes, to be sure, whatever is going on right now is not the exact copy of what we've seen and heard of the Soviet nations. There's no secret police, there's no gulags, there's no strict censorship or material deprivation, at least not now. But Dreer says, that's precisely the problem. What these immigrants are telling us is the fact that relative to the Soviet communist conditions, life here in the West remains free and prosperous, and it's just those two things that are blinding most Americans to the mounting threat to our liberties. That, and this was the line, that and the way that those liberties are being taken away as they're couched in a language of liberating victims from oppression. If any of this has any merit and weight to it, then what I'm hearing from various professors that were interviewed in Dreer's book, from this 90-year-old woman who was alarmed in 2015, to Rod Dreer himself, and other pastors, leaders, is that freedom is being couched and spoken of with flattered language that's trying to sell you liberation of oppression when in fact that is oppression. One professor living here in the Midwest that had immigrated from Soviet Union said, I was born and raised in the Soviet Union. I'm frankly stunned by how similar some of these developments are to the way Soviet propaganda was pushed and operated. Or another professor, one that grew up in Czechoslovakia said that he began to notice a shift about a decade or so ago where friends would start lowering their voices and looking over their shoulders when expressing religious or political views. He noticed that some people started talking about their beliefs in a normal tone and the others sitting at the table would start fidgeting, constantly scanning the room to see who might or might not be listening. And then the professor says, this is what I grew up with. I didn't think that was going to happen here when I came to the United States. So here we are, we're living in a 
technologically unprecedented day where we can be spied on in our homes with devices listening to our every word, where no privacy can really be found. Virtually then, there's nowhere left to hide. So as Dreer says, and this is an important concept if you're tracking and you're wondering, come on, quit the fear-mongering, Pastor Phil. I think what Dreer's trying to say is it's not hard totalitarianism, this is the words he used, but soft and sneaky. Soft and sneaky words of propaganda to control and censor beliefs specifically of the Bible. And friends, at this point, it would be probably helpful for some of you to just have me start walking through specific issues. But honestly, as I thought about that more and more, I thought, I don't know if all of you will hear me. So here's the most important application of wrestling with this concept. Is it possible that you and I are living in a world and a society we need saved from? A society that's full of all kinds of talk that sounds like it's setting people free when in fact it's oppressing the poor and the marginalized and the weak. Or saying one thing when really it's just doing the opposite. This is what our psalm says. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Verse 2, flattering lips, and then here's that phrase I was thinking of, a double heart they speak. In Hebrew, the phrase is a heart and a heart. That's literally what it reads when you read it in the original language. A heart and a heart. Meaning they got two hearts, two minds, two ways of thinking about things, and they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Dreer says, we cannot hope to resist whatever is coming our way, and it's something. Call it soft totalitarianism, call it something else. My guess is that you've observed some level of what we're talking about today in this message. And so he says, if we do not have our spiritual lives in order, then we will not resist faithfully as we should. So I want to just conclude and finish our time together thinking about how can we live in this day in light of whatever threats are around us. To whatever degree our society, we look around and say, godliness is gone, faithfulness has vanished, Every side we look, wickedness is prowling around and vileness is exalted. Things that used to be basic common ideas about truth and family and language are now being said to be oppressive concepts that are hurting and destroying people's lives. The very words of God are being turned and twisted. So how can we live in that kind of world? Well, I would want to suggest that you understand that in the same way that we can trust God's word because it's a reflection of what he does and his words speak reality and they're a reflection of who he is. But that especially you should understand that the Bible's concept about the word of God takes on this beautiful new expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of one of the four Gospels, so when you read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth of those, John's Gospel, begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
In the beginning, the word spoke creation to do existence, and that word was the very expression of God himself, and all that is exists because of that word. Beautiful, glorious, exultant beginning to a a gospel book. But then in verse 14, John says that the word, that same word that began all things, that word became flesh. That word dwelt, it's the Hebrew phrase tabernacle, the Greek phrase for the Hebrew tabernacle. It means he pitched his tent with us. God, the power of God, the word of God became flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us. So when you read verse 5 and 6 in our psalm, And it says that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And more specifically, when you read verse 5, and it says that God speaks, and when he speaks to this psalm, in this psalm, and in this situation, he says, because the poor are being plundered, because the needy are groaning, I will arise off of my throne that we read about in Psalm 9 and 10. The Lord sits enthroned above the earth and he's looking down and we saw from last week, his eyes are are squinting and he's gazing at every little event that's happening and he knows what's happening to the righteous and the wicked. He's watching. And here now we get to Psalm 12 and the psalmist is declaring, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do something. So when did God get up off of his throne and do something where he said, I'm listening to the cries of the the needy and the groans of the poor who are being oppressed and plundered? And I believe John chapter 1 gives us our answer. The God who sees all, the God who rules and reigns over all, the God who laughs when the boastful lips of the wicked say, who's going to master over us? Well, I'll give you an answer. The Lord who reigns is your master, even if you don't acknowledge it. You can live in a society that's full of evil and full of wickedness and constantly boasting, nobody's going to stop us. But you, brothers and sisters should remember verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 12. And then look at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh, and realize God did get up. He did arise. He did hear the cry of the oppressed, and he became the oppressed. He is the Word that was crucified and under the crucible of the fire of the furnace because he died on a cross and was purified, perfectly sanctified through the coming of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung for our sins and the sins of this world. In what ways is the Lord's words pure? Look at the purity of Jesus. The purity of his life, the purity of every word he spoke, John will then go on to clarify in his gospel, he wouldn't say a single word on this earth except it coming out from the very will of the Father. He doesn't speak a sentence, say a letter without the Father guiding every single word that Jesus spoke. The best exclamation point to our psalm is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, friends, 
Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, put your trust in God's word because a deceived world will be saved through a divine word. And the divine word is Jesus himself. Maybe we should close down with one word. Tetelestai. That's the word John records in his gospel that Jesus speaks on the cross. One word. Tetelestai. As it's translated in English, it's finished. The work of creation finished on the seventh day when it was perfect, but the work of new creation finished on the seventh day when Jesus rose again from the dead after he paid every sin on the cross and took the place of the oppressed and died the death that you and I should have died, but was risen again. So you and I could have confidence in the word of God. His word is true. His word is living. His word is active because his word is Christ incarnate. Friends, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe his words? If you're a guest or visitor here, you don't call yourself a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. It could be what's happening in 2021. It could be COVID. It could be all kinds of things. Whatever you want to look around, our job as believers is to be a community of people that helps one another trust God's word. Trust Christ as the full demonstration of God's word. Because of that one word, it's finished. Tetelestai. He did it. And if we put our hope and trust in the silver-like perfection of God's word, then I'm confident that you and I will be able to live and be sustained and manage whatever comes our way. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you praise. We want to give you thanks. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you especially that you did not want us to be confused about what you've said or what you're like, but instead you definitively revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to praise you for the gospel. We want to thank you for the work that was finished on the cross. We want to thank you for the words that you speak to us. Many of us are here in this room because of a word. A word from you, God. Not a word from a pastor or another Christian friend, but as the Bible was opened to us, we heard your voice. And we want to thank you with our whole heart for being a God who speaks, who's personal, who's real, and that your word changes and transforms and sustains and guides us when we don't know what to believe or where to turn or what to think about the surrounding society around us. We want to pray, Father, that in your kindness, your Holy Spirit will bring words of comfort, words of hope, words of building up and not tearing down, words of unity and not words of division to this church. May we be a safe place where words that are spoken are often your words and not the words of the world. We pray, God, that in your kindness, you would grant us this so that we could be a refuge in a, a society that needs saving. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.